John McLean, thank you for joining us on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Your new book is called Home Waters. It is a memoir of your family's life in Montana. It's also a story of your dad. It's your story. And I think there are plenty of people, including a buddy of mine who, when I called him over the weekend to say, walk me through fly fishing. I know you're a big fly fisherman. He's like, well, you're, you're talking to John McClain. You don't really need to talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) Well, it is a good answer, but I'm also glad I talked to him because there were a couple of things about tying flies and whatnot that I think may come in handy for this conversation. Uh I'm not in fact a fly fisherman, but I appreciate the connection that you have developed with Montana and the river that you've grown, essentially grown up on, even though you also grew up in Chicago. Anyone who's read A River Runs Through It knows the cabin that you're writing about in Home Waters, and it's really beautiful. How did this book start for you? Uh, It started as a fish story, Uh, Mm -hmm. a very simple fish story, but a very nice one for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I tied into this enormous uh, rainbow trout on the Blackfoot River, Mm-hmm. And I had never seen a rainbow trout that size on the Blackfoot River. Uh, I've caught salmon that size in Alaska where my son lives, uh, but nothing like that on the Blackfoot. And that's from a lot of years of fishing with a lot of people who are very good at it. I think one of the things that happened that made that possible is that they had taken out a big dam at the confluence of the Blackfoot and the Clark Fork Rivers which allowed uh, larger fish, Park Fork is a bigger river, allowed larger fish to come back to their native uh, spawning grounds. And I think that the fish that I tied into had had a life in the Clark Fork uh, before he got up into the Blackfoot. But it was uh, the fish of a lifetime. And uh, when it was over, I was fishing with a friend of mine. He had sense enough to leave me alone for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went over and sat down and started thinking about it. Uh, what it meant. I thought, well, I've done it. I've got the fish of a lifetime. A couple of days later, he came up to me and he said, would you write that story for my angling group just for our little journal? And I said, you know, that's not a bad idea. And I, I owed him <laughs> a lot. Uh, he has a ranch that borders this hole where I caught mm-hmm. the fish. And he's a good, very good friend of mine, a very dear friend. So I wrote it and it was kind of fun. And uh, I mentioned it to a, another friend of mine. He said, well, why don't you write that one for Big Sky Journal? He said, it's a great Montana story. I said, okay. So I did, and I, and I forgot about it. I figured, well, I've done it. And uh, I, I'm a writer, and I was writing other things, working on other books. And a couple of years later, uh, an editor from New York at HarperCollins, Peter Hubbard, was out in Montana on vacation. And he picked up this old copy, a couple of years old, of Big Sky Journal and read it and called me up. He said, hey, how would you like to do a book uh, from this? And as I thought about it, I realized that I had a very fat sketchbook uh, with a lot of material that wound up being regurgitated and reworked, became part of Home Waters. But I had been putting this stuff together for more than 30 years. During my father's final illness and after his death, Mm -hmm. I became kind of a, a magnet for people that gave me things. And I collect things. I'm a pack rat. And I love the old things. Somebody tried to throw away all the junky uh, dishware that we had at the cabin in Montana. I'd collect it, put it in a box, and that kind of stuff. So I also had gone around uh, in Chicago when I did a final tour there. Most of my journalistic career has been here Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. But I did a final tour in Chicago. And... It was all going on at that time. The movie was going on, and Mm -hmm. we were talking about Young Men on Fire, and everything was uh, up for grabs. And I started interviewing people who had known my uncle Paul 
And I was really, frankly, almost more interested in him than interviewing people who had known my dad. I thought, well, somebody else will do that job. That's an obvious job. Paul mm -hmm. is a parallel figure in my life. He's kind of a shadow figure in my life. And I explain that in the book, how that happened. It's continued all my life. It continues to this day. Uh, and it's had a good side and some bad sides. He had was a negative example in some ways. But I wanted to know about this event that had shaped the life of my family and shaped uh, River Run Stewart, which was Paul's murder. Uh, I had been a police reporter in Chicago, and at the time I was doing this, I was in my 40s and uh, worked for the Chicago Tribune and was basically Paul's last living relative. So I was able to get access to a lot of documents that most people can't. I was also a kind of offended by the way, after the movie came out, people started jumping all over the great mystery of Paul's death, and turned it into a semi-cult and came up with some real nonsense about it. And uh, yeah, there were conspiracy theories and a lot of stuff on the on the internet. And so I mean, I've had enough of this. Uh, I would, here I am, you know, many years later, uh, mm -hmm. after I've done all that, collected all that stuff, where I've got it, I've got the basic documents. And uh, I would like to write this in a way that tells you what can be said about it and what cannot be said about it. It mm -hmm. is was unsolved uh, murder. So mm -hmm. I did that. Anyway, as I started writing the book, it became much more than a fishing story, uh, right. although that's the way I start the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just kept adding things, new things. I call it a chronicle. I don't call it a memoir. Okay. And I, I had a, a discussion with my editor about that. He said, well, why don't you just call it a memoir? That's a genre. I said, well, because it's not. It is mm -hmm. more than that. It goes back mm -hmm. to 1806. Right. Uh, when Mary Mother Lewis went through our valley, through the Blackfoot Valley, it comes forward almost to the present day. Uh, it certainly gets into the 21st century. I'm, I've got a lot of age on me, but I haven't got that much age. <laughs> you know, this isn't just my story. It's also right. uh, not just a McLean story. I mean, the Burns family uh, has been kind of ignored. Uh, and one of my cousins, a Burns cousin, complained to me about that at one point. Mm -hmm. And as I was doing the book, I realized that I had sat down with my uncle Ken, who was in the book, who was an absolutely yep. wonderful man. After his wife died, he was very sad and started to write a family history. And he got about one third of one notebook page and had to stop. Mm -hmm. I love Ken, and this is the kind of work I do. So mm -hmm. he and I sat down and we put together about a 15 page history of Wolf Creek and the Burns family in Wolf Creek. Right. And I showed it to my father. My father was still alive at the uh -huh. time, and he corrected it and uh, edited it. And I had forgotten that I, I'll be honest with you, I'd forgotten I had it. Uh -huh. But I pulled out from this fat archive of material that I had. There's a lot of Wolf Creek history in there. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of moving parts in that book. And one of the real challenges um, in the final six months. Uh, put it together was to work on those transitions yeah. and to make sure they were not stumbling blocks. And uh, I, I know that, you know, River Run Seward gets taught in schools a lot, and I think this is going to be a companion book. And mm -hmm. if I were a teacher uh, in an English literature class, I would say, mm -hmm. look at this trans transitions here and see if they work. And why do they work? And how much material are you able to pull together into a comprehensive narrative if mm -hmm. you make good transition? That's one of the hardest things to write. Uh, are they successful or not? And do an essay on that. And a lot of that, I think, probably comes from, you know, Calvin Trillin always called himself a deadline poet. You were a newspaper man for, what, 35 plus years, right? You were covering state. I was a Washington correspondent of the Chicago Tribune. There were about a dozen of us. Most of the time I, of the 18 years I was there, I was the diplomatic correspondent covering the State Department. 
So you spend a lot, a lot of time on planes. <laughs> a lot of time on planes. <laughs> you got it. But it does bring me back to something actually that you write about in the book. Your grandfather, who was a minister, um, homeschooled both your dad and your uncle Paul. And I love this line. Um, I share your grandfather's philosophy. Um, Never be too proud to cut a single word. So it's very clear to me that you've inherited the McLean style. Um, Those transitions are great. The book itself is, is really beautiful. Can I go back to the fish for just a second, though? Because I'm not sure I can separate the fish from the family. I mean, you in the book even ask, like, how did we become a fishing family? And it's partially place, it seems to me, but it's also the act of communion with your dad and your uncle and and other men in your family. Well, as a family activity, uh, you all go out together. And it's, you know, in in those early days, uh, 40s and 50s Mm -hmm. and the 60s, it was the man's world. And you'd go on a picnic and the women would uh, pull together the camp uh, and you mm-hmm. would leave them. And then the men would go off together and then the men would separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way we fished. I violated that because I loved my Uncle Ken so much. I would try to fish close to him all the time because it was so much fun. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, when I was a little kid, I'd hang around after, after George, big George Kuhnbergs and so on. But that's what we did. You split up and then you come back together and you share your uh, men's world stories. Mm-hmm. But You've all shared uh, a similar experience, although you might not be able to even see each other at the same time. You're in the same river. Mm-hmm. You are smelling the same smells. And uh, the world feels and smells differently when you're on a river. Uh, there is a, basically a tunnel of air above a river mm-hmm. that is moist and humid and cool. And that's where the insects that our fish feed live. They don't, mm-hmm. You don't see mayflies uh, up on the banks uh, in the cow pasture. You see them down by the river uh, where they can hang around on brush and so on. And it has a very special feel. And it is a, a form of togetherness, of communion, if you like, where you don't have to speak about it. It happens. You know that you've all shared the same thing. There are great similarities in catching a fish and connecting with the fish. Uh, the thrill is the same for all of you. As a family, it is then becomes a legacy and a tradition uh, that is passed down from one to another. I don't think I think we did it the way most people uh, teach their kids to drive. You, you leave it a lot of it to other people because it's too important to you. I describe a, a couple of scenes in the book where my dad and I are fishing together, and I tie into a fish. And he starts helping me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what he's doing is you know, getting into the river and trying to shoo the fish up toward me and uh, giving me too much advice and screwing everything up. But it was something that was kind of a bond that you don't have anywhere else uh, in your activities. Uh, you don't have it at mealtime because everybody's there. You don't have it uh, just going for walks. You don't have it studying or passing things on. It's an outdoor, real-life immersion Mm -hmm. kind of experience, much of which is uh, without words. And in my case, and I know in my dad's case, it's something that lasts uh, forever. Norman McLean was a careful and patient fisher of trout, you write. He would approach a hole as he would a book by pausing first to look things over, checking the table of contents as it were. Once he had a fish on, Norman almost never lost it. So words and books and ideas and fishing, these are all really tied up very tightly for you. Inseparable, and uh, Mm -hmm. certainly fishing has led into an awful lot of what we've written. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I've five other books that are not about fishing. Uh, this has to be the one that is the real continuity book. This mm-hmm. is the one that takes in all the past, the present, and casts forward into the future. Mm-hmm. When I deal with my sons and my nephews about that cabin, I was just emailing with one of, them, one of my nephews today. And one of the things that I'm trying to do at this point in my life uh, is to pass on the cabin really and in other ways. And the kids mm-hmm. are picking it up. They're doing a beautiful mm-hmm. job, all, all four of, uh, of the sons, my mm-hmm. sister's sons and mine. And uh, I expect them to do the same thing. We don't have the fishing opportunities here in the East that we do in the West, but we go fishing. Uh, we have a lot. We've got the, uh, good brook trout streams. We have Pennsylvania and other things. Mm-hmm. That'll be part of it. It probably won't be as important as it has been to me and as it was to my father. And mm-hmm. as it's been to my son who lives in Alaska, who uh, is a very serious fisherman. But I think it's going to be there uh, as a way of defining yourself, where you came from, where you are now, and where you hope not only you, but the next generation goes. You're right. My grandfather worked hard at being American, as first-generation immigrants often do, and in his later years achieved a voice more straightforward but still elevated. Your grandfather, as some would know, was a minister out in Montana. And community is a big part of your story and how that community informed you as a tiny person. I mean, you started going to the cabin when you were very, very small, didn't you? I was in diapers. I remember mm-hmm. there from the time I was in. I did, don't have a memory of that, obviously, mm-hmm. but I've been told about that. And it's one of my nicest memories. The uh, wife of a friend, uh, dear friend there said, oh, John, I remember you when you were out on the porch, uh, sitting on the floor in your diapers, waving your arms, and you were the happiest kid I'd ever seen. And uh, so that's the kind of thing that stuck with me. So, yeah, I've been doing it for a long, long time. Well, and you would spend summers out there, right, when you when you were growing up in Chicago? Well, my father taught, mm-hmm. and so we could leave. Uh, we could leave early in June, which we didn't do, because mm-hmm. the weather out there in those days before climate change uh, was very rough in June. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I insisted we do it one time. So, you know, we're, we're done with school. Let's go. <laughs> you know, why are we wasting time here in Chicago? And so he said, all right, well, I said, you're going to find out what this is like. Let's go. And so we went and it was uh, you had to keep a fire going all day long in an open fireplace to have any hope of warmth. Uh, the, we're on a narrow uh, valley there, uh, the Clearwater River Valley, and these mm-hmm. storms would come down from Canada, and you could just see them coming down from the north, all laden with uh, wind and wet mm-hmm. and uh, cold, and you know, you'd have to duck. Um, what I discovered was that the intervals between the storms were fabulous fishing. You know, <laughs> the sun might pop out, and you'd have 15 minutes, and that would be it, uh-huh. and you could just murder them <laughs> for 15 minutes, but then you had to hunker down. But he, as I say, he was a school teacher, and we didn't have to get back until September. So we had all summer long, every summer. And it sounds like Sunday nights were pretty fabulous, though, that there would be potluck suppers before everyone else headed back. And, and there would be storytelling around a campfire, as you call it, Western style. That's right. This is partly it's tall tales, uh, but partly it's, you know, the tall tales are real. And mm-hmm. the ones that I don't remember anybody outright lying or telling Charlie Russell kind of stories that are deliberately mendacious. These were things that really happened, and they were dramatic and weird, uh, but they were real. There were people who, uh, miners in that Wolf Creek area, mm-hmm. uh, who would winter out there, and then in the spring, they would have to get into a hot tub for an hour or two, 
basically to loosen their long underwear because their body body hairs is crude, but it's true. Their body hair had grown through it, and they had to you know pluck this stuff off and clot. Uh, and there are all these kind of stories. And my father tried to be the maestro, and mm-hmm. for the most part succeeded. Uh-huh. Uh, you'd have maybe twenty people in the room, so it was hard to make one conversation. Right. You know, eight people right. about the limit for one conversation. He insisted that there be no crosstalk, that people listen and be given an opportunity to speak. And once people got used to that and realized they were going to have a turn, then it became easier to listen to somebody else rattling on about their experience. And there would be little flurries of comment at the end of a story where other people got to chime in. But then you had to quiet down and it would be the next person and they would tell their stories. And it was campfire storytelling. And that is the pattern that he'd grown up with around campfires Mm -hmm. in the Forest Service and out in the field. Mm -hmm. And he kept it up. And that verbal oral tradition is the one that informed his writing. Uh, He thought Charlie Russell's book, Trails Plowed Under, which is a group of tall tales told by one of the greatest artists in America, uh, was the prototype for Western storytelling. And he consciously copied that, uh, that it would have a dramatic conclusion to it and, you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end, all that. My father's stories are much more sophisticated, Mm -hmm. but that's where they started, and that's where he started. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good place for anybody to start because a story should be told to someone. You don't sit there talking to the back of the room. You should tell your story eyeball to eyeball to another person. Once you get that under control, then you are beginning to be a storyteller. When I started my career uh, writing books, people would not know how to introduce me. They would say, uh, John is a journalist, and uh, you know, one, I have one book, and say, well, and a storyteller. Is that all right with you if we call you a storyteller? Say, so, yeah, that's just fine with me. You don't have to call me a literary light. You don't have to call me an author. You call me a storyteller, I'm there. That's what I do. Is that when you knew that you also wanted to be a writer? I mean, sons don't always follow in their father's footsteps. I mean, is that part of what you made you say, oh, I think I really can make a living out of this working with words thing? The living part of it I came to later, but the knowledge that I would be a writer came to me very early, partly because that's what my father wanted to be and he wasn't. And Mm -hmm. that rubs off on you by osmosis. Mm -hmm. You don't have to articulate that. But I think the, the, the real precipitating event was when he handed me uh, Ernest Hemingway's Big Two-Hearted River, which is the best thing Hemingway ever wrote. But Big Two-Hearted River is uh, about as perfect an American story uh, Mm -hmm. as you can uh, write. And I read it when I was very, very young. And I thought, well, that's what it feels like. That's the way I feel when I fish. Mm -hmm. And gosh, it's easy. It looks so easy. I can do this. (laughs) And... I have spent the rest of my life <laughs> trying to get to a point where I could do this. <laughs> I mean, it's not easy. I mean, when I looked at Charlie Russell's paintings, you know, each one of them has the skull of a, of a cow, of a steer mm-hmm. in the corner. Mm-hmm. That's his signature. And I thought, that's easy. I'm going to do that. And I started to do it. And I don't, I'm just not there. Uh, I'm better off writing. You also mentioned, though, that uh, Sherlock Holmes was a companion when you that's, were younger, too. Absolutely. And that's- so can we talk about Holmes for a second? Because there are there are lots of folks that I'm always pleasantly surprised to say, oh, no, seriously, Sherlock Holmes is who I am yeah. and, and how I got here. So there was a volume of Sherlock Holmes in the cabin, and you mm-hmm. stumble upon this book. Now, we didn't have many books at the cabin, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a lot of time. 
Mm-hmm. And when I finally discovered this thing, it was a fat book, and I, I liked that. I thought this was going to take me a while. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading it and uh, read it year after year, same book. Finally discovered that it was only volume one or volume two. <laughs> and this was revelatory, you know, that there was so much that I had read. And I wasn't the only one who was doing that. My fly fishing uh, mentor, mentor George Kroonerberg, read Sherlock Holmes, and we would discuss the method, and we would discuss the way you look at things and figure things out. And we would do it while we were fishing, mm-hmm. and you know, as Holmes did. Uh, we would approach a mystery and try to solve it. And when you have eliminated all the things uh, that it might be in a distance and there's only one thing left, that's the one, that's the solution, that kind of thing. But as a habit of mind, just trying to figure out puzzles like that, the mm-hmm. way Holmes figured them out, based on objective data, certainly was the way I started to be a reporter. And I hope it's the way that I've uh, always continued to be. They're great stories. You've also written five books about wildfires, uh-huh. some of which have been incredibly devastating. And, you know, certainly we're seeing an increase in the severity and the danger of forest fires as, as climate change continues. You transition, though, from being one of the correspondents covering the State Department for the Chicago Tribune in Washington, D.C., and then you say, hey, wait a minute. I can't leave the West behind. I just I, I need to do something else. I've been doing this for a while. Now it's time. And there was a particular story that kicked off the second arc of your career as a writer and a storyteller. Would you let listeners know what that is? Well, I'm more a child of destiny than an intended uh, Uh author. What happened with that is after my father died, he left the advanced draft of Young Men and Fire. And I'd read it uh, a long time before that, but it was not a good book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll explain that in home waters. And other people had read it then and said the same thing. And then he'd worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And so we had, uh, my sister Jean and I had uh, had it read by one of his oldest friends. Said, we should even try to have this published. He'd been in on it too along the way. And what he said was, well, yeah, you should. It's kind of as a credit to all the work he put in on that because he worked on it for more mm-hmm, than a dozen mm-hmm. years. And so we took it to the University of Chicago Press where, where he had taken a river run through it could have gone to a big house and uh, sold it. And we went to the University of Chicago Press and they agreed uh, to publish it. And I'm very thankful to them for the way that they have handled this all the way through, all of a river runs through it and everything subsequently. Uh, they put a very fine young editor on it, Alan Thomas. His wife is a Japanese expert and they went off to Japan. He doesn't speak Japanese. So he holed up, I think, in a hotel room and worked the book around. I asked him at the end of that, I said, Alan, we're going to be accused of having rewritten Norman's book for him. I want you to sit down and write what you did. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely flat out honest. And so he did. And it was a fat paragraph. And he said that basically he had rearranged it. And at one point, there was a transition. We've talked about difficult transitions. Mm-hmm. And he had to write in three sentences. And that's the only additional writing that was done. The book came out, and it was an instant success and hailed as a classic. Alan actually, years later, gave the best analysis of that book that I've ever heard. Uh, And we had him, my sister and I both encouraged him to publish it, which he did uh, in the LA Times book review. Mm -hmm. And basically, he said, you can have a book that has great flaws. Mm -hmm. And A Young Man of Fire has some great flaws. And it can still be a great book, which it is. We're all happy with Alan. I did the first audiobook reading of Young Men on Fire. I did it at the cabin, actually. 
I've never read anything easier in my life. It just flows. I mean, the rhythm is perfect. Uh, it sails along. And then suddenly, I hit three sentences that went clunk, clunk, clunk. And finished up that section. I thought back, I said, that was Alan Thomas inserting a transition. Yeah. And it was. <laughs> uh, so that was Young Men on Fire. Fine. Mm -hmm. I'm done. Mm -hmm. I've read the book as an audio book. I've helped get it published. I helped uh, with some of the final editing. I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. And then in 1994, the South Canyon fire occurred right. uh, in West Central Colorado, and 14 firefighters were killed, one more than had been killed on the Man Gulch fire that my father wrote about. Mm -hmm. And there were all these similarities that were immediately described in the uh, in the news accounts. This is just like Man Gulch. You know, it's in a narrow gulch, same time of day, crew trying to run uphill to get away from a fire, rolls up behind them and kills them. It's, you know, Man Gulch all mm -hmm. over again. I have, uh, I've been lucky in my editors. Most people don't like their editors. I have liked mine. Got a name, Owen Youngman was my editor at the Tribune. Mm -hmm. And he came over, he said, Tom, shouldn't you be out there writing the story? This was about day two or day three mm -hmm. uh, after the fire. I said, give me a minute to think about that, Owen. And uh, he came back and he said, okay. I said, look, the 45th anniversary of Man Gulch is coming up this August. Why don't I get my dad's old research partner and some other people and go mm -hmm. to Man Gulch? Everybody says, this is just like Van Gulch. Let's find out. Is this really like it or not? He said, do it. And I've had an exchange with Owen since Home Waters came out. That story's mm -hmm. in Home Waters. And he said, yeah, I read that, John. I appreciated that. He said, boy, it sure reminded me of how things used to be mm -hmm. in the news business. Where an editor like that could say, do it. And all of a sudden, you spent a couple of thousand dollars. Anyway, I did it. And uh, again, I thought, well, I, I'm done. I've done my duty to my newspaper to myself, to my father, to Man Gulch. And I ran this big story in, in the Tribune, a good story, by the way. Mm -hmm. And the headline writer wrote on it, Fire on the Mountain. And oh, I looked at that and I said, that's fantastic. That's what a great, great uh, title. So mm -hmm. I went and found it, the guy who had written. I said, where'd you get that? He said, oh, it's an old uh, country western thing. So I ran down the guy who had written the song, the lyric, mm -hmm. the story. He said, you're going to run into all kinds of trouble if you try to use that. Because we've got a lawyer, they've got a lawyer on that uh, company, and they'll go after you. And mm -hmm. That was going to be very difficult. You can't copyright a title, but right. I didn't want to get into that trouble. So I went to the Library of Congress mm -hmm. here in Washington, D.C., to the Folk Archive. Mm -hmm. And I started looking up folk songs. And sure enough, Fire on the Mountain is a folk song. So instead of imitating the lyric of the copyrighted uh, country music song, which is a really good one, made it clear that I was copying an old folk song and I put the lyric of the old folk song in the book because uh, it's a good lyric <laughs> and it also avoids uh, any kind of a copyright issue. So that was uh, how that evolved. I mean, what had started as a story uh, in the Tribune, uh, I, I couldn't leave it alone. I wound up calling uh, the parents of the guy who had been in charge of the fire, Don Mackey. And there's another coincidence here because they lived in the Bitterroot Valley at the mm -hmm. mouth of Blodgett Canyon. And Blodgett Canyon is one of the principal sites in one of the stories in The River Runs Through It. And this is old home week. There were Missoula smoke jumpers involved in, in the fire and one thing or another. And these people, uh, the Mackeys, were very dear friends of mine for many years. They're both gone now. Don's brother-in-law, Kevin Erickson, became a good friend. And I hope to see him again this summer. And his, his wife, Jan, who was Don's sister. He's all these personal connections. And I was, you know, sitting there with 30 years in the Tribune. Uh, 
I was kind of enjoying my job, but I'd you know, gone up to as far as I was going to go and didn't like to look at of it and had come back down and was a, a reporter, which I liked being. And I just said, it's time to get out of here. And I did. And five books <laughs> later. You were your dad's first reader for the TypeScript. Of I don't know if we were the first readers, but we were among the first readers okay. for the TypeScript. Yeah, I mean, it got, it, that's been said, but I don't think that's true. I didn't say okay. it. I think other people had read it too. But we were among the first readers when A River Runs Through It was in TypeScript. Myself and my wife, Fran. And it was a revelatory experience. We had read his other stories and commented on them and said, you know, you need to straighten this out and one thing or another. And we read A River Runs Through It and said, there's nothing here that needs to be straightened out. This is world-class literature. It's mm-hmm. perfect. One of the most beautiful things I've ever read. It's magic. And don't let anybody mess with it. And nobody ever wanted to mess with it. it it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever written. And your dad turned 74 the year it was published by the University of Chicago Press. And it was the first piece of fiction they had ever published. It has been in print ever since. And uh, it is genuinely, it's a marvel of a book. It really is a marvel of a book all these years later. It changes people's lives. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, people talk to me about this. I can give you many, many examples. I'll just give you one. Yeah, sure. The cover photo of uh, Home Waters is a photograph, a wonderful photograph of the Blackfoot River. And uh, it was taken by a friend of mine named Alec Underwood, who is, uh, lives out in Missoula and works for uh, a wildlife federation. Mm-hmm. He was born in uh, upstate New York, and he mm-hmm. read a river runs through it when he was a boy. And he decided he wanted to go to Montana, and he did. And uh, I got in touch with him, or he got in touch with me through a mutual friend And when I was doing the book. And uh, I wanted to find out about the Blackfoot uh, all I could. And we got talking to him, real nice guy. And I said, look, why don't we go fishing together and discuss this? I don't do that. I don't mm-hmm. invite people to go fishing with me. I, I don't. But he sounded like the right sort. So he said, okay, where should we go? I said, well, meet me at such and such a place. And mm-hmm. we'll go. So we got there in the evening. I timed it just right because the boats were coming in and pulling out. And nobody could go downstream. It was too late in the day. And uh, there were parking spots. So we parked, we got out, and we fished for a couple of hours and had a really beautiful evening. And uh, we're sitting on rocks watching the river. He said, John, I want to tell you something. He said, uh, loved your dad's book, and that's why I live in Montana. He said, the first time I came out to Montana, the first time I ever fished the Blackfoot River was right here. And I said, wow. He said, I want you to see a, a photograph that I took uh, mm-hmm. of the Blackfoot. He said, I think it's my best photograph. Uh, so I said, okay. So I looked at it, and as soon as I looked at it, I said, that's the cover of the book. And it is. You have a beautiful line in the book where you write, memory can and should be more than a bridge to the past. Did anything surprise you while you were writing this chronicle? There's a lot of very personal material in here. I mean, material about your Uncle Paul, material about your dad, material about yourself. I made some decisions when I started the book so that I wouldn't get horrified at what I was doing. I was not writing a biography. I was writing a chronicle slash memoir. Mm-hmm. And the same rules, the rules that apply to biography of, you know, you have to put in all the warts, uh, mm-hmm. you, you have to analyze it to make mm-hmm. it real, so a real biography, don't apply when you're doing that. So I decided that uh, what I have told my sons, and not even half joking, but very seriously, you know, is honor your parents, uh, and your days will be long in the house of the Lord. And that's the approach I took. And so the surprises that came were wonderful Good. surprises. The discovery of the Lewis journey through the Blackfoot Valley was mm-hmm. a wonderful discovery. 
I had never seen my valley that way. And I found this guy, Ron Cox, who's a historian for the Cedar Lake Historical Society, who led me through all that. And you know, you go up and you look back, and you go down and you go up on the side hills and look back. And I always stayed down on the river. And so I got a totally different perspective uh, of the ground with which I was very familiar. Uh, I rediscovered things that I had discovered once, like the history of the Burns family and found lots of photographs to back that up and spent time at the historical societies. I'm normally not a library researcher. I'm a field researcher. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I did some of the, some of the library stuff. Uh, but the discoveries uh, were expansive discoveries, I think mm-hmm. partly because of the tack that I took, but also partly because of what was there. I mean, it's just a very rich vein, uh, and it was a lot of fun to explore it and to do it. The surprise was the pandemic. Right. And that gave me uh, time to concentrate, for one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't go anywhere for a long time and right. worked this thing really hard. And what I would like to see is give this thing give people a lift, you know, a yeah. sense of place, a sense of family, a sense of things that we looked for during the pandemic and started to find mm-hmm. that the outdoors is a wonderful outlet. Uh, this will encourage that. And if that is one of the follow-ons from the book, I'm going to be a happy camper. I think it will be. I'm glad you said that. Your dad studied with Robert Frost, even though Robert Frost was not so interested in the Dartmouth undergrads. And you have a <laughs> wonderful story about your dad teaching the old man in the sea at Chicago and you were there at the back of the room. Is there anything that you took away from your dad's writing that you use in your own? Is there something that your dad taught you? My father uh, tried to teach me writing and wasn't entirely successful. What he did teach me was economy of expression, and that was was successful. And drilling into me and demanding the need for absolute clarity and simplicity. Mm-hmm. And when you read uh, the Reverend McLean's uh, sermons uh, and eulogy and the eulogy that I, I reproduced in there, that's mm-hmm. what they are. They're elegant. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're rhythmic, but they are, uh, you are never in a doubt about what he's saying. It couldn't be more clear. Uh, and that I, I got from my dad. You know, how much can you teach kids of it, something that's technical? You pass along some of it, mm-hmm. but, you know, you rely on other people and you rely on the kid. I rely on my children to, to take the inspiration, the love of the outdoors, the love of learning, mm-hmm. and do something with it. And they have both surprised me in the way that they've done it. And I'm delighted to be surprised. And I think my dad handled that uh, uh, pretty well. He used to read to my sister and me. And my wife and I read to our children. I think that's being lost now with all the computers. Parents reading to children Mm. is a vital uh, form of education and bonding. Remember, we read wonderful books when we read Tom Sawyer to us one chapter at a time, and we couldn't wait for the next night. And then we got to Huckleberry Finn, which was even better, and on and on like that. You know, the classics get passed along, uh, and the practice of doing that gets passed along. Is there anything that we missed that you want readers to know about Home Waters? I think from what I've been reading, that people get it. The two, uh, I'm not bragging, but the two reactions to it are, I love your book, Mm -hmm. and it's beautiful. Yep. Those two things. That is not what people say about my books. (laughs) My books are are about fine, for the most part, fine young people being burned to death on wild on fires. And nobody rushes up to me afterward or says the review, oh, I loved your book. It's so beautiful. It's not beautiful. And it arouses many feelings in people and uh, I hope earns respect. 
but that's not what's happening with this book. Mm-hmm. People are getting this book almost instantly, and I'm having trouble with that. Uh, <laughs> I really am. I mean, I, I'm not used to this. Uh, and people are saying that it's on a level, a plane with a river runs through it. I'm not used to that. Uh, so I'm going through an evolution, and a very pleasant one, uh, trying to catch up with what I've done. So you ask me if what people should know that I know that they don't. I think that they, in some ways, know more than I do about this. And that's not uncommon uh, with writers. You write the book, and you don't always see what you've done. And uh, I'm still trying to figure out what I've done. That seems like a very good place to end. John McLean, the new book is Home Waters. It is a chronicle of your life as a McLean, as a fisherman, as an outdoorsman, as a writer. It's wonderful. It is beautiful. Everyone should read this book and they should be inspired to be outside as much as possible. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this a lot. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.